Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Again, thank you for your warm welcome during these days and your generous words. It's very much appreciated. And again, if you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me uh, through robertosborne.info. And if you want to send along a message or be in contact with me, you can do it that way. I'm also leaving some cards uh, at that connection desk at the back if you want to pick one up. And so today we're going to finish our uh, Go series, this annual uh, talk about our well-being here at Westside. And, uh, and here's what we've done in this series. The first week we talked about the need to pay attention. And I referenced Psalm 32, which is a really important text for, for my own life, uh, where God promises us to counsel us, to teach us, to counsel us with his loving eye upon us, which is a beautiful phrase. And then it, there's this corresponding uh, responsibility that we own, because the text then says, do not be like the horse or the mule. <laughs> uh, don't have your head down. Um, guidance requires attention to put it simply. And then last week, we talked about our talk, especially or specifically conversation. And we said that this ordinary way of being was so crucial to our lives and to how we gain a sense of what's going on. So we talked about talk last week. And today, we're going to complete our journey with some thoughts about this beautiful word discern or discernment, which is another way of talking about how we come to know and how then we can choose. So that's what discernment is about. I often refer to a metaphor that I love. I, I've, I'm, a lot of times in my life, I'm looking for the right metaphor, and I often invite people to do that. What's your metaphor? What's your, what's your picture? And for me, uh, this roller coaster picture has always been important to me. Uh, roller coasters actually might teach us something about life. Uh, I don't know how many are roller coaster fans here. A few of us. Um, I don't think so much I am anymore. I was at one time in my life, and our family really would be divided on pro roller coaster and anti roller coaster. We went on one one time uh, where we went, did all our flips all the way to the end, and then we came backwards the whole way. That was a ride. But here's, what a, here's why you would go on a roller coaster, because you know that you will feel things, but you actually have a deeper knowing, or let's say a confidence or a trust, that you'll make it through that thing, right? You'll scream your head off all the way through that, that experience, but you somehow know you're strapped in, you'll be okay. There's something profound about that. Um, what our confidence or our trust tells us in terms of what we can know and, and trust in the twists and turns and the ups and downs of life. And it's that we'll arrive safely. So there's this oft-quoted piece from Julian of Norwich, all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. You've heard that. I deeply believe that. But that's a way of knowing. That's a discernment despite the feelings of life. So on Thursday morning, as I was preparing for this moment, I sat with my thoughts and I was overwhelmed because that happens sometimes. I sit in my room with all my books in the sea of ideas and I have chased ideas all my life and I love a new idea and a new book and you've chased them, right? And I've come to the topic of discernment and I realized because I've been in this area of of uh, focus for a few years now that this is a very large topic, maybe as large as human experience itself. How do we know things, right? How do we spiritually discern things? 
How do we make the right choice in all the choices that are before us? And so there I was, <laughs> overwhelmed. What am I going to say in a limited time on Sunday morning? And there's no short and easy way to talk about what we need to talk about. And so I did what I often do. I just sat back, put my head against the back of my nice, comfortable chair. Do you ever do this? And because I pray and read the Psalms continually in my life, I just came back to this simple picture from Psalm 131. A song of ascents of David. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. That's a good word. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. Let's just take a deep breath right now. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. A psalm of ascents, which means a psalm for the pilgrims as they make their way up to the holy city to worship. And it's such a little psalm. One scholar uh, I was reading this week suggested that it's often passed over because it just seems so simple. It doesn't contain the grand and complex things that tend to attract us. And those are the things that appeal to our pride, right? But this song, this little prayer, this psalm, teaches us how discernment actually comes through humility. So maybe we need to start in a posture this morning. And maybe I could paraphrase those first few lines. I am not proud in the center of myself, says David. And my eyes don't reflect my pride by how I look at others. And I pray this, and I say, well, good for David, but I am proud. <laughs> I like to put forward my best side. I like to tell my best stories. I like to hide my worst parts. Is there anybody with me in this room? Okay, we're on the same page then. It's fascinating how the idea of pride has shifted in our modern consciousness, actually. We tend now to see pride as something good, maybe necessary, maybe something akin to a good sense of oneself. But the ancients didn't see pride that way. And sure, we can affirm that our scriptures endorse what we might call a properly grounded sense of well-being, and God wants that for us. But pride is different than that, at least the way we're using the word here. Pride is independence. Pride is protectiveness. Pride is self-justification. And you can see it in that second line in the poem, right? The haughty eyes, the tendency to compete, or the tendency to look down on others as a way to feel better about oneself. That's not a good way of being. Pride is not a good thing because it actually cuts us off from what we want and what we're looking for, that deep sense of well-being. And this is what true humility gives us, actually. True humility gives the ability to live closer to the ground of reality. And that's what humble really means. It comes from the word humus, earth, right? It is a connection to our truer self. While pride promotes the false self, the image, humility finds and is in search of the real, the real self that is truly loved by God. As the old song puts it, just as I am. 
just as I am. Do you notice where the psalmist goes then? He says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. He's suggesting something quite profound here, that this proper sense of self also has its corresponding way of knowing. And he says here, it's not overly complicated. (laughs) It's not overly grand. It's more rather close up and simple and clear. Maybe what Jesus would say, love God and love your neighbor. That's what you need to know. That's what you need to choose. And the proud person on, in, on contrast really can't be taught anything, right? Can't be shown anything because they are already sure of what they know. I don't know if, uh, you've, if, if any of us have been to Israel. Some of us have been there at, at the Church of the Holy Nativity in Bethlehem the traditional birthplace of Jesus. If you visit that church, here's the door that you enter through. Uh, that door right there, which kinds of, kind of reminds you of the West Side door a little bit. <laughs> a little, same width, a little shorter. Um, it, it, you have to stoop and bend to get into this church, which is just saying, herein lies the story of God, enter in humility. Um, I think there might be another story I was told one time when I was there that this door was created to keep the people on horseback from riding into the church. <laughs> that might be what happened. <laughs> but we'll call, it, we'll call it the humble door. Actually, that's how they define it now. Um, perhaps West Side single door can be given a meaning. I don't know. There's a practice to all this. The psalmist says, I have calmed and quieted myself. I often ask that question to the people I spend time with. Do you know how to quiet yourself? Do you have a way to do that? And is it working for you? (laughs) Because tensions and arguments and anxieties and busyness don't tend to, and I'll say it this way too, the overload of ideas doesn't tend to get us to knowing It doesn't tend to get us there. We know through quieter ways, through simplicity, I think. So this past Thursday, as I was sitting with my massive thoughts and all kinds of possible thoughts and suggestions around me, and the ideas that I've chased through my life, um, I came back here to this simple way, this simple posture of openness, which starts in a place of humility. Here's what the psalmist says. I am like a weaned child, which means... In some sense, we could say, I've grown up even just a little bit. (laughs) I've grown up enough to, when I'm hungry, I don't fall apart. You know, if I'm sitting at the table at about 5.30 with tears streaming down my face, and Susan says, what's wrong? And I say, I'm hungry. (laughs) I know what my Susan will say. What's wrong with you? Grow up a bit, right? But, you know, to put it plainly, something hasn't yet developed in me. I don't know how to sit with what I don't yet have. And I do believe we're going to do our crying in life. We will. We surely will. But perhaps the more we live, if we are learning the way of humility, and the more we pass through shifts and changes and ups and downs, perhaps we can better learn to discern the faithfulness of God toward us as we sang this morning. And perhaps we can grow up if just a little bit. Over these past few years, I've been rehearsing these lines from Paul, Philippians 4, where he says, I have learned contentment. I've been 
musing on that. Paul learned that it wasn't just something that was given to him in an extraordinary moment. It was something actually he learned through process. He learned it. And then he says, I have learned. He says it twice there in Philippians 4. I have learned the secret of contentment through process, through time. And then the psalmist ends this way, doesn't he? Israel, speaking to the whole people of God. West side, put your trust in the Lord. So I want to offer Psalm 131 there as a spiritual discernment text. Not that it answers our questions, and I won't do all that today. I'll, I'll give some thoughts. But it does give us a posture, doesn't it? It orients us to the way to begin. Not proud, but humble. Perhaps our language needs to shift. Not to talk about what we know so much as what we're still asking questions about what we still need to discover in the journey of life. To shift from the great matters to the smaller, up close and personal things. Maybe discernment doesn't begin by asking the great things we can do. Maybe it begins in the simple ways like, how are you? Really, how are you? (laughs) How are my brothers and sisters? What's going on around me right now? And the smaller things. Maybe... Discernment begins by learning to settle down and be content with where we are right here, right now. Not that we have what we need and not that there isn't more to come, but we can accept this place as the place to begin, just as I am, just as we are, and not pretend otherwise. And finally, maybe we can embrace this idea that discernment is a community thing. Because one thing I've come to know about knowing, and I I pursued a lot of ideas about knowledge in in theoretical and philosophical ways, but I've come to embrace uh, the search for spiritual discernment. And one thing I know about this in terms of knowing is that we know things together. We don't simply know them by ourselves. We know them in community. So I'd like to come back then and repeat what I said in the first session about Ignatius. Um, You remember, as I talked about Ignatius, he is a man of his times. He was a man of his times, lived 500 some years ago. And as a man of his times, he was captured by the vision of his time. And what was held before his eyes as significant and worthwhile was to be the chivalrous knight. That was the image of significance and success and meaning. He'd grown up in a world that had limited his vision, right? And and so uh, this is what he was pursuing. And you recall that he had a, a catastrophic injury, a cannonball crashing through his leg. And I told that story, and it's uh, bone chilling to think about all that he went through. It disrupted his thinking. It disrupted his knowing, we could say. And at that point, he begins to pay attention to life. And he begins to pay attention. Well, he, he, he receives some reading about Jesus and the saints. And he begins to att- pay attention to the way of, of God as shown to us through Christ and his followers. And he begins to notice, and this is the beginning of his discernment, he begins to notice how those thoughts begin to change him. He discerns the differences within himself. He notices how these thoughts produce different states of being in him, different outcomes. When he imagines himself as the chivalrous knight and all that attended that, gambling and dueling and going to war and chasing the ladies in the court. He says he finds himself flat 
and sad, actually. And when he begins to think about Jesus and the beauty of holiness and the life of faith and service, he says, somehow I'm revived and strengthened. So I reviewed all this with us in our first teaching. But what's interesting as we pay attention to Ignatius is we start to realize that he's a man with competing thoughts within himself, and that's what we all experience. We've all had that experience of a thought leading this way and another thought leading that way. <laughs> we all know what it is to have different voices in our heads, right? When I was a young pastor in my 30s, uh, I began to get restless. And this was a condition I think I faced several times in my life. Uh, and in my 30s, uh, when I got restless, I think really it was because life was starting to go by. You know, here I am now 30 years later. But at that time, I thought it was a crisis. I'm turning 35. Life's going by. I've got big plans, right? And unlike the psalmist, I was concerning myself with great matters, things too wonderful for me. And I remember driving in my car and talking to myself. Do you have some of those conversations in your car? That's a great place to talk to yourself. You know, someone drives by and kind of looks at you. What's going on in there? Uh, but I said to myself, you are of two minds, Bob. There are two voices in your head, <laughs> one that wants X and one that wants Y. And they're going in two different directions. And then I would quote James, the brother of Jesus, who said, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Ignatius noticed these, these uh, competing voices within him, doesn't he? And he's curious about them, maybe more than most of us are. We just accept that, but Ignatius is curious. And he starts to ask needed questions because of this, well, these competing voices. And he would ask a question like, where does this come from? What is the source of this thought? And if I follow any, either of these competing thoughts or competing voices within me, where will that lead me? He was awakening to discernment. Now, C.S. Lewis is one of those voices in my head. <laughs> uh, I've, I've, uh, I've read most of what C.S. Lewis has had to say. He's got this beautiful little, very, very tiny essay called Meditation in a Toolshed, which is worth finding. I think you'd probably find it on the, on the web. And uh, what, he, what he does here is he, he notices a difference. He says, I'm standing in a dark toolshed on a sunny day, and he sees the sunbeam breaking in over the door. And he looks at the beam of light coming in over the door, sees the dust dancing in the air. He looks at the beam. But then he moves his position to look along the beam. And he looks out over the door to the trees and the leaves blowing in the wind. And he sees where the beam comes from, the source of the beam, the, the shining sun, right? And he says, he says it's a very different thing to look at something and look along it. Those are two different perspectives. To look at versus looking along. To look at something is important because <laughs> it tells us about what that is perhaps, but to look along it is to see where it points and where it's from. I think that's a very powerful illustration of discernment. Lewis said it was a habit of modern thought to look directly at things and to see what they are. And we learn that way. 
but he said it was a more ancient habit to look along a thing to see where it points or to where it's sourced, and that gives us a different view. That's a discerning view. And if we admitted then that not only are there multiple voices in our heads, but multiple voices in the world, well, let's learn to ask the needed questions here. Not only what are those voices saying, what is being said, saying, said, and that is important, but where does this lead and where is this from? Because that's the revealing question. And the application here, I think, is innumerable for us. What would I become if I continue in my present state of being, if I continue in my discouragement or my anger? Where will that lead me in my life? What might be another state of being that I could embrace and where would that lead me? What if I learned the secret of contentment? What would that point toward and where might that come from? Where are my my words sourced? Uh, As I said last week, our words are tremendous revealers of our inner life. Where are they sourced? Where are the words of my friends or my community sourced? See, asking questions like this will begin the journey of discernment. Look along things, not just at things. So I, looking back in my life, I can, I can track seasons. And I, I love the concept of season because season tells you that there are passages in life that are not just a day or a week or a month. It might be a little bit of time. But a season is a wonderful phrase because it says, but it's not forever, <laughs> which is a really comforting thought. And I hit a rough patch in my early 40s. I was deeply discouraged. A series of circumstances had arraigned themselves into a place where I got really stuck. And I want to tell you about looking along a series of things that happened to me that, and this will be deeply personal again, that helped me not to simply look at my life, but look along my life to what what was happening and where I was going. Because it started with a poem. One day I discovered this beautiful little piece that I'll give you by Marilyn Chandler McIntyre, What to Do in the Dark, okay? And here it is. Go slowly. Consent to it. And there's a whole lot of wisdom in there I could talk about. But don't wallow in it. Know it as a place of germination and growth. Remember the light. Take an outstretched hand if you find one. Exercise unused senses. Find the path by walking it. Practice trust. Watch for dawn. Beautiful, right? So I came upon this little poem and I kept it before me for a while. And I... For some reason, I took special notice of that one line, take an outstretched hand if you find one. Because that's what I felt I needed in some way. And then a few weeks later, I was reading a a book on prayer by the venerable James Houston, a wonderful teacher of Christian spirituality, who I think is close to his 100th year now. (laughs) And he quoted a rather bleak Roman pagan prayer to the gods that in part went this way. The God whom I know or do not know has oppressed me. The goddess whom I know or do not know has placed suffering upon me. 
Although I am constantly looking, although I am looking constantly for help, no one takes me by the hand. And it was that phrase, no one takes me by the hand that woke me up. <laughs> I'm still in this season, right? And I'm struck by what I'm reading here, the, the deep down despair that this soul is, is expressing. This soul doesn't know which God to appeal to in their pantheon of possibilities. All they know is a kind of deep unknowingness, right? Nothing, no one. There seems to be a blank in front of them. And I was somehow startled out of myself as I read this because I said, whatever discouragement I'm, I'm experiencing right now, it's, it's not this. I could discern that difference. That, I could discern that much distinction, right? I could say that while I don't like where I am right now, I somehow knew that God had not abandoned me and because I believed what Jesus said. You know, a lot of times uh, I'll say this, I don't know, but I know him and he knows, right? And that's all I knew at the moment. I knew Jesus' promise, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. And even though in some ways I could say I had been letting out a few screams on the roller coaster ride of life, I wasn't absent of hope. That wasn't me at all. I discerned that much. And then it wasn't too long after that. So this is very personal. I was reading my Bible and a little gift appeared. <laughs> you know, there are those times in, in life where the change hasn't yet come, but there are hints it's coming, right? It's kind of the way summer comes in Calgary. You know how this works? It starts somewhere in late February when you say, the days are getting a little longer and it brightens your spirit just enough. And then there's a day in March when things start to melt. And then of course it snows again. And uh, there's this long process that takes about four months. <laughs> um, Bird song is a beautiful, hey, it's coming. And then another snowstorm. <laughs> but then it starts, then the green grass pokes. You know what I'm saying? There are these hints, change is coming. There's this discerning that change is coming. And here's what I read one morning in my reading. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. And I sat back stunned because it was so deeply personal. The reason I talk about personal things is because I believe this is the key to life, to be personal, to pursue the big ideas. But whatever you do, do don't lose yourself in it and know that the ultimate reality is the all-personal, infinite God who loves you. That's the key to knowing. And somehow in that moment I'd been found, God would take hold of my hand. And while it was always true that I'd been attended to, always true that I'd been helped, I hadn't been seeing it for a while. I hadn't discerned it until this string of repeating phrases, right? About taking the hand. And I realized I could do more than simply look at the words. I could look along them and see where this story was going, where it would lead me. And from that point, I began to pray with the outstretched hand. So that's how we'll end today. We'll pray with a hand if you want to, to take the hand of God, living in the power of the hopeful weight. And then my life did shift and change, but I'd been prepared for it. 
I had this, somehow what had happened through all of that is a deeper sense of well-being because life isn't just random happenings. You are not simply a product of market forces and social engineering. You are a person whom God loves. God leads and attends and directs. Even when you walk through the dark valley, he is with you. So here's where I want to end today with the profound story of Helen Keller. And I told this 10, 12 years ago here at Westside, and so I'll repeat myself. It's a deeply spiritual story. You wouldn't, you wouldn't go to it thinking this is a spiritual autobiography. It's a story of a, of a life. She calls it the story of my life. And I think the wisdom of this book is retreating from our time, and, and perhaps you need to bring it back into your home and read it. So I'm only going to rehearse a small piece of it here, but, but get it, read it, because it's, it, it teaches us wisdom and understanding about what it means to come out of a dark knowing into a light of knowing. Keller was, her story is that she was only about 19 months old when she lost her ability to see and hear. So consider that. I mean, she descends into a kind of black unknowingness. I'll put it that way. That's really hard to fathom, right? Can't see, can't hear. And it's just at that time that advances are starting to be made in the education of blind and deaf children. This is the late 1800s. So at seven years of age, uh, Helen receives um, in her home a teacher, Miss Sullivan, who comes to live with the family. And by that time, at seven, she's grown very belligerent. I mean, Helen has become difficult. You can imagine. She lives in this dark, silent world. She doesn't know. She's unable to see. She's unable to hear. She feels disconnected. And what does her teacher do? She begins to introduce her to language. How would you do that for a blind and deaf girl? Well, what Miss Sullivan did was to spell letters on Helen's hand. That's what she'd do. She would spell doll. D-O-L-L, and place a doll in her hands, right? And she would do this over and over. And Helen learned to mimic these actions, but, you know, she couldn't make the connection yet that the reference in her hand <laughs> were, uh, the, the letters in her hand were references to things that she was being placed in her hands. She had no concept of what the teacher was doing. And her state of being, we could say, was simply disconnected. And she describes it this way. Have you ever been at sea in a dense fog when it seemed as if a tangible white darkness shut you in? And the great ship, tense and anxious, groped her way forward while you waited with beating heart for something to happen. Light, give me light, was the wordless cry of my soul. I mean, you can already see that where Helen was is not where she ends up because she has a tremendous faculty with language that develops in her. But at first, not so. The spelling on her hand and the attempts of her teacher to associate these letters with words and then words with things goes on for a long time, right? It's a process. It's a, it's a process of learning. And then comes this startling moment of breakthrough. Her teacher takes her to the well and places her hand under the spout so that she can feel the water. And she's spelling over and over again in her hand, W-A-T-E-R, W-A-T-E-R. Suddenly, this is Helen's writing. Suddenly, I felt a misty consciousness 
as of something forgotten, a thrill of returning thought. And somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. And I knew then that W-A-T-E-R meant the wonderful, cool something that flowed over my hand. That living word awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, joy, set it free. That's just extraordinary. This is, this is the moment when she opens up. It's only the beginning, and there are many barriers left in her life, many things she doesn't know. But with this breakthrough, you could say, all those other barriers could in time be handled, swept away. So here's the place to begin, the first building block that's necessary in her life. She said, I left the wellhouse eager to learn. Everything had a name, and each name gave birth to a new thought. I find this story absolutely remarkable. Uh, it is a story of breakthrough into understanding or knowing, which is the beginning of discernment. All this unknown stuff that we experience within us, all the confusion around us that needs to be named, are given words so that we can wake up more fully to the reality we are part of this God-attended, God-infused reality we call life. So that's the question, really. Is it possible to name what is in us? Is it possible to name what is around us? Is it possible to, to name the discouragement that is in us? Is it possible to name our frustration? Can we name our conflicts? Can we name our sins? Can we name our struggles and pitfalls? And can we name the awesome wonder that breaks in upon us as human beings from time to time? When, when things line up, like that little story I told you about the, the, the hand that was offered me, and somehow, <laughs> somehow you feel attended to Somehow you feel presenced. Can we name our hope? Can we name what it is we most deeply long for? Everything has a name, says Helen. And I find here one of the most helpful pictures of what it means to wake up out of that deep sense of unknowingness, out of that very incapacitated state, and begin to learn to connect to the wonder of what is around. But maybe I should reframe that, the who that is there. Because that's really the point. You know, when Helen begins to learn the names of things, all these things, doll and water and everything else, begins to tumble into her consciousness. But the most important names are the names of the people in her life, mother and father and sister and teacher. Naming is not just for persons. It is for, I'm sorry, for things. It is for the living world of persons, the persons that Helen was attached to. And she says she even learned her own name, Helen. Her feelings of isolation are beginning to, what, loosen. <laughs> She's be her aloneness is beginning to reverse. It's a beautiful story of coming into light, even though she never regained her physical sight or hearing. And I wish I could tell you more about Helen. There's so much to say here. But what I really want to say as we end this series and this talk today is that Helen's breakthrough comes through 
an establishment of some really basic building blocks. She learns. She starts with letters and letters become words and words become names and names refer to things and naming finally connects her to persons. There's this building block of learning and discernment in her life. And I'm suggesting it's, this, it's how it works for us in our discernment processes. We pay attention. We start with the most basic and up close things. What's going on? What am I meant to see? <laughs> we embrace meaningful conversations as we talked about last week. How do you see it? <laughs> uh, we search for words from our own heart. Here's how I think I see it. But maybe I can change in that, my perception. We talk, we walk together, we pay attention. And then we start to connect perhaps to the who that is there because that's the point of it all. You know, when the name of person of Jesus was, was explained to Helen by her Anglican priest of Phillips Brooks, she simply said this, I always knew he was there, but I didn't know his name. Which is just simply extraordinary. And this is where discernment ultimately leads West Side and where this series ends. It ends with the point of discernment because all that we've talked about over these past weeks, we could say is just what? Fancy spiritual talk, esoteric spiritual knowledge, or is it more to the heart of things? Because here's where the real heart of discernment comes. It is to see how Jesus is present to us. That's really the heart of it. Remember last week when we were talking about the disciples on the road to Emmaus and they're talking about the things. Remember we talked about that if you were here last week. They were talking about the confusion they had over the things that had happened. And they're talking to the who that knows all things. <laughs> That's really the point of, of the story that they were addressing and being addressed by the who that they have to do with. That's what they needed to see. See, what Ignatius teaches us is to find God in all things. To look and discern the presence and attending care and guiding hand of God in whatever is facing us and whatever we're dealing with, whether it is days of plenty or days of want, whether we feel we're well in our soul or not, how is God present with us here and now? So I'm going to end with this, and perhaps it's not my place to say because I am only a guest. It's set up there on the first slide, special guest, <laughs> or just guest. I didn't think it said special. It just said, it just said guest, Bob. So maybe it's not my place, but I'm going to risk this. What if Westside were to become a whole community of persons learning and teaching this way of being, learning to help each other pay attention, learning to participate in more meaningful conversations, learning to discern the voice and presence of God where we are right now in our community and friendships and family life? What if we were embracing this way? What would be the effect of all of it? Could we look along that thought and see our future? Could we look along that thought back to God and see this is really what he wants for us? Let's pray. And maybe if you'd like to, as I, I told you about my prayer, 
way of praying through those months in my life, just raising a hand up to take the hand of, of God who is leading me by the hand. If you want to pray that way today, feel free to do that. And so we say, Lord of life, Lord of our lives, thank you for your promise to always be with us through every season, through every up and down, through the roller coaster of life. We have anchored our knowing on that promise. What we ask for today then, as we conclude this series, is that you enable, that you would enable us to genuinely discern your real activity and presence with us. We don't want to be cut off from that, Lord. We want to see and hear. Show us what we need to see and hear. And then I would ask for this today. Would you build in us through all forms of practical and spiritual learning the ways of discernment? Would you show us how to discern how you are with us so that we can walk out our lives with a sure step and a loving heart? This morning, I want to just say thank you for my brothers and sisters here at Westside, and I ask that you would bless this community richly. Amen and amen. Listen, I want to, I would like you to stand and I want to bless you one last time. And I so thank you for allowing me to be with you during these weeks. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. God bless you and thank you so much.